Welcome to Founder Chats by Bear Metrics, where we chat with founders and hear about how they started and grew their business. My name is Brian Sierkowski, Director of Ops at Bear Metrics. This week, I talk with Spencer Kuhn, founder of Beamer. In this episode, we talk about Spencer's background, starting in investment banking, his early entrepreneurial efforts, and how he pivoted multiple times to find product market fit. Hey, Spencer. Thanks for joining the podcast. Yeah, of course. Happy to be here. How are you doing today? Not too bad. Sitting here in Boulder, Colorado. Pretty nice awesome. day. Enjoying the last bit of summer. What's the weather like right now? Is it, is it cool out there? Or what's, the, what's the weather like? So it gets decently hot, actually, in Boulder and kind of all of Colorado mm. during the summer, it, unless you're like high in the mountains, which we are not here in Boulder. So yeah, I don't know. It's like highs, you know, like high 80s, but just sunny and nice and long days and good time to like get out, you know, before and after work and enjoy being outside. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in South Texas. So my wife actually said to me the other day, like, oh, it's, it's really cool out. And I looked at the temperature and it was 80, it was like 87 degrees. <laughs> so you just <laughs> well, like, trust it, me. yeah, I know very well. I'm level. actually from, from Dallas. So I, I know this very well. <laughs> you, you get it. Yeah, totally. Cool, man. Well, yeah, again, thanks so much for joining us. So I'd love it if we could start from the beginning. Uh, I'd love to hear your story and, and kind of hear where, where did you start off? Like, where did your entrepreneurial career begin? Totally. So I actually started my career completely not in the entrepreneurial scene. I was an investment banking analyst uh, at JP Morgan in New York City. And I did that for a couple years in Latin American M&A group. It was a really amazing experience. I knew it was not long term, the lifestyle or the type of work I wanted to be doing. But looking back, I honestly am still really happy that I did that. I learned a lot about how to work efficiently, (laughs) let's say, and just met a lot of people, learned a lot about a wide variety of industries, started to get a little more interested in tech, started gravitating a bit more towards that. And also, since it was a Latin American M&A group, I did learn quite a bit about South America. I got the opportunity to meet a lot of people who were very well connected down there and ended up being able to actually move down there and do a couple more years in investment banking, but working for a local Chilean investment bank in Santiago, Chile. And that experience was really life-changing. I have actually lived abroad for a little over eight years post-college and working full-time. And it's been an amazing experience. It's definitely helped shape who I am. And that's actually where I met my co-founder, Mariano, in this. So it was very transformative. And yeah, not entrepreneurial at all, but it was it was a good start. Oh, yeah, certainly the going through M&A processes, like hugely informative to as you're as you're running a business at least for you to have some sort of sense of well if we were to sell this thing or you know as you're getting investment like what are people even looking at like that's such a blind spot for for so many people yeah absolutely no having that background in finance and that's that's honestly why I got into finance in the first place you know I guess it didn't last like too too long but I knew that really that's something every business needs, right? Like you really can't get away from right. the financial Hope, side of things. Just for, yeah. yeah, hopefully. <laughs> you know, for funding your business, making sure you're profitable. And I wanted to have that kind of base understanding of it. And so, yeah, it, it is nice because, yeah, certainly like, you know, when the concept of like valuations come up with, you know, VCs or with potential acquire, like I, I, I do have that base, you know, understanding sure. from those years working in banking. So, yeah, it's definitely, definitely good. When did you decide to go into finance? I majored, I guess, in finance at the University of Texas, where I went for undergrad. 
So I already had this idea. I had a couple of mentors and I think my, my dad as well had kind of given me this idea. So I don't want to take too much credit for it of just like finance being the backbone of, you know, any business and just a great kind of like base for you to have. So I think I'd already decided that was a good place to start. I also was always uh, way more interested in subjects like math and science and foreign language. So anything with like patterns, numbers, I always kind of gravitated towards that. So I think probably that's another reason why I, I kind of had that in my sights. Cool. Yeah, that's really interesting. So it sounds like when you were going through or going into college, you had this understanding of how important finance was to how important finance was to businesses, but maybe almost like how applicable, I guess it's a very transferable skill set. It sounds like maybe that's what was in part attractive to you. Absolutely. It was a skill set that I viewed that once you have that, that's really an enabler to let you work in kind of whatever you want. I mean, you can go from that and work in any industry and you know it's a skill that's going to be valued and that people are going to want to have on their team. So I think that certainly was the reason as well that I kind of caught my interest right from the get-go. Cool. As you were going through college and studying finance, did you have any inclination that this was maybe heading towards you starting a business or was it really like, hey, I'm going to I'm going to become an investment banker. That's going to be really cool and exciting. And maybe at the time you thought not that much work or, or, you know, were you already thinking that maybe this was heading towards becoming an entrepreneur or uh, was it just like, Hey, I'm going to get a great job and I'm going to be a, a valued member on whatever team I join. Totally. No, that's a great question. I, I definitely already did have an idea that I wanted to run my own business at some point, or at least work in like a smaller team with like some some partners or, or friends that, that I really trusted. I already had that idea in my head. I wouldn't say I was like the most entrepreneurial kid. So I would say to anyone listening, yeah, I mean, you don't necessarily have to be the guy that's, you know, running the lemonade stand when you're 10 and, you know, having all these like amazing ideas when you're super young to later go on and join a startup, even like, you know, found a startup. Because I, I was, I, I wouldn't say I was that guy, but I always thought, I would like to do it. And I think the reason is, there's multiple reasons, but just the independence, being the master of my own destiny, sort of my dislike for like busy work or doing things that I didn't really think mattered or were adding real value. Just kind of like wanting to focus my energy on what, on work that to me like truly matters and, and has an impact. I think kind of knowing that all those things were important to me made me gravitate more towards, you know, hey, someday I think I'd like to start my own business. And I think also just like looking at it also, you know, from a financial perspective, like I knew that, you know, taking like equity and ownership and things is certainly like a great way to to get ahead financially. And just having that extra upside and incentive is something that I think was important to me too. So I think it's kind of, uh, yeah, wasn't sure I would do it, but it seemed like given the kind of lifestyle I want, the different goals that I had, that entrepreneurship would be would be a good fit. Awesome. Yeah, I think the either either through an assumption that you would be a better boss than an employee or through the actuality of working somewhere and realizing, man, I'm just really not good at being an employee. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people figure that out that, hey, maybe I'd actually be a little bit happier if I were on the other side of the table. Did you find that you mentioned, you know, that sort of a diversion to busy work or things that, like you said, you couldn't really quite you couldn't really, really draw the the reason for these things happening. Did you find that that school was challenging for you, or did you kind of find your your system to to work around? I found my system to work around it. I think I was always just highly ambitious. I mean, like 
in high school, I mean, not to, but you know, I was like valedictorian in my high school. So it's, nice. it's, you know, definitely school was not hard for me, but I think what I did is I was just really good at figuring out, okay, on these tests, <laughs> kind of just exactly what do I need to do, doing kind of the bare minimum to, and figuring out kind of the tricks of right. tests, especially like multiple choice tests and things like that. So I was always, I think, very achievement oriented and, and maybe that was motivating me a little bit more in school. And then I think busy work in terms of like my first couple jobs. So like when you are an analyst at an investment bank, like you have just tons and tons of work to do. And it's kind of hard to see how some of the tiny details in like those last 20 hours of like a 90 to 100 hour work week are really adding that much more value. So I think that was probably even a little bit more frustrating. And yeah, something that definitely made me think like, hey, if I was my own boss, you know, maybe I wouldn't have to be doing this. Even though, of course, yeah. like, you'll always end up having to do some work that like is not your like core focus or something you're most passionate about, but you at least have like a little bit more control over it. There's some sort of a cosmic humor there that people say like, I am sick and tired of these 70 or 80 hour a week work weeks for working for somebody. So I'm going to start my own business. And then in the first couple of years of that business, they're working like a hundred hours a week. Exactly. Like, Oops. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. I might've, I might've might solved for the wrong, I might've solved a, you know, it's like you got the right answer, but you, you got there the wrong way. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I'm curious, you know, I've, I've sort of heard about the investment banking world a little bit. I'm curious if you just share like a little bit more of your experience there. Like what was that day-to-day like, you know, what were the the tasks? Like what of those 120 hours every week, like what was the kind of breakdown of like what you had to do and, and had to, to learn to be successful in that role? Totally. So we were on, like I mentioned before, like an M&A team. So we were advising really large corporations on M&A transactions. So what that is, is when a company wants to like acquire another business or divest a large part of their business or, you know, even like, sell, you know, sell themselves, like sell the whole business, they'll hire an investment bank like JP Morgan to advise them on the transaction. Because obviously we're talking about like hundreds of millions of dollars, even potentially like billion dollar transactions. So it's uh, quite a complex process. There's a lot of variables involved. One of the main things they can help with is like, you know, valuations. So one of our big tasks was a super complex one. Like, how do you value a, uh, you know, business that's, you know, got, you know, hundreds of million dollars in, in revenue and profits. And so a lot of what we'd be doing as an analyst is creating and maintaining models. So like financial models that can try to, even though it's always ends up being, seems like kind of more of an art than a science, yeah. but models to sort of help these bankers and these executives wrap their heads around like, what is this really complex and large entity worth? And then creating presentations. So you're building these models to kind of get the raw data that you can use to back up your sort of pitch as a bank. And then presentations, you're putting together presentations, really long, many times like hundreds of pages, PowerPoint presentations for the senior bankers to go meet you know, with CEOs and, and other executives of their customers to explain like why, you know, this is the right business for them to buy out of all the, you know, thousands of potential ones. And here's the value we think it is. And here's the structure you should use. So it was nice. I mean, it, it definitely, you run in really small teams. And I think that's, that's a big reason why the workload is so high is they have just really small 
efficient, high-performing teams. And yeah, you get exposed to like a lot of very senior, smart, experienced, well-connected people at a really young age. I mean, I was like, you know, 22, I guess, when I was doing this. So it was, that was one of the things I liked the most about it is just that exposure to just really smart, ambitious, and experienced people working directly with them on projects at a a pretty young age. Sounds like there might be a pretty even breakdown, but do you have a, like a thought around how much time was spent on actually doing the work, creating the model, you know, trying to figure out, like actually doing the, doing the paperwork around what is this thing worth versus the time spent on preparing the presentation? Was that like a, like a 80, 20, was it like a 50, 50? Like where did the, where did the time breakdown go between <laughs> the actual doing of the work and yeah. the actual presenting it? Totally. Yeah. That's a great question. I would say it would skew more closely to the 80, 20 than 50, 50, where the 80 is the actually preparing of the presentation. Just because, I mean, if you're JP Morgan and you're going to charge someone, you know, millions of dollars for your advice on a certain transaction, like, Things have to be polished. Things have to be perfect. And that, that is another, I would say, pro, something that I, I valued about my time in investment banking is just you're really trained to do everything perfectly, double, triple checking everything. Mm. You actually become really good at making like nice looking presentations, like making like, and we can get into this later. We didn't end up actually like raising any VC money, but I put t- together mini decks and that was like, I guess, quite easy to do after my experience with JP Morgan. So yeah, you do end up, I would say, like spending more time kind of like the presentation side of things and on the actual, you know, work of like how much is this is this thing worth, for example. So when you said 80-20, is 80% of that going towards building the presentation? Yes. But some of that is like also analysis. I mean, it could be a page of like well thought out bullet points for here's why we think you should use this structure in buying this company. It's not all just like, you know, formatting and making it look pretty. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's interesting. And I was I was sort of wondering about that too, because yeah, it, it strikes me as one of those things where you could really spend a bunch of time, I guess, um, trying to choose my words correctly here. It, it's not enough to just like come up with the right answer, right? Like you're, you are in a, in a realm of persuasion. You're kind of saying like, hey, like this is the work that we did and follow me along this path. And then we're going to make some sort of recommendation or arm you with some sort of, decision or some sort of data. So just, you know, delivering them, you know, an Excel file probably doesn't really, doesn't really get the point across in the way you probably wanted to. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, for sure. Did you ever find yourself in the position to recommend against doing an acquisition? No. And, you know, I was like extremely, to put in context, like extremely junior. You know, I was Mm. at JP Morgan, I was, you know, first and second year analyst. So you know, obviously there's no, you're pretty far down the totem pole. And these are like very big, complex deals. So, I mean, maybe we'd have like some, you know, I'd have some insight or some disagreement with like, you know, a VP I was working with or an associate I was working with over, you know, evaluation or something like that. But yeah, no, I I was definitely not senior enough to be kind of disagreeing with any, any of the CEOs on like certain decisions. You weren't walking into the boardroom and flipping the table over. Wasn't in the boardroom at all. Yeah. For sure. Got it. In my cubicle. (laughs) Makes sense. Yeah. And I I guess, are you saying it's kind of more like by the time it gets to you, they're like, okay, we're like diving in due diligence style. We really want to construct the model. We're we're pretty sure that we want to move forward with this. And we we now need you to kind of 
we're getting to the point where we're sort of negotiating terms and, and those sorts of things. Was that sort of more the, more the nature of, it could um, be that. I mean, what they could come to us and say like, hey, we want to buy a company with these characteristics. We want to buy, you know, a solar company in Brazil, you know, between 100 and $200 million of EBITDA, you know, or some, some characteristics like that. And then we would actually go out in the market and do a bunch of research and use our network and the variety of kind of awesome tools that we had at our disposal to build a list of like, hey, here are the 10 companies. We can connect you with these CEOs. Here's how we'd value each of these. So we would do a lot of that as well. It's not that the customer would come to us and they would already know for sure, I want to buy a company XYZ. Just tell me how much it's worth. It was oftentimes a little bit more, more involved than that. But it kind of, it kind of ran the gamut. You know, sure. It kind of depended on just like what deal you, you were assigned to. Got it. That's cool. Yeah, and you, you already mentioned the, you sort of gained this like double, triple checking you know, skill set that the skill set of like precision and and accuracy. Was there anything else you learned either as far as the skills that you gained, or just like generally through analyzing the finances of all these companies? Of like, hey, here are like something like we will never do this with our money, or you know, whatever. You know, kind of even even just like kind of tactical domain level experience that you got that really rubbed off on you. <laughs> Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I'm sure there are many things. I guess one that comes to mind is just you really do learn when you spend enough time modeling and building out financial models, how really the true value oftentimes is much more just using them as a framework to understand kind of where you're going and to understand how different inputs and variables could affect the outcome using it much more as that than as a like, <laughs> you know, taking this thing as this is my roadmap, this is what's going to happen because you always end up seeing there's just way too many variables and unknowns for the models to accurately predict what really happens. So they're much more of a framework than like, hey, I can just put all these numbers in this model and oh yeah, I see that in three years, you know, my revenue is going to be 200, you know, thousand in MR. Perfect. Right. Um, yeah. Cause it's and not going to happen gonna like that. Up, yeah. The one thing, you know, is that it will <laughs> yeah. not be accurate. That's the one thing right. I can assure. <laughs> right. That's cool. Yeah. So the, the, the model's more of a, more of a tool, uh, a decision-making tool, or even almost sounds like when you were building the presentation, even that process is like, all right, I want this slide to present this information. You can almost work backwards from there. It's like, okay, well, what do I need? And then, well, geez, how do I even think about this data that we've already gathered here? hundred percent. Yeah. Much more of a guide and a framework is how I would use it. Yeah. That's really cool. I, I've been doing some sort of independent study and um, one of the kind of areas that I've gone down is sort of like these different, I'm kind of into a personality type rabbit hole at this point. And there's so many different models, but one of them is like the, the, you know, Indian Ayurvedic tradition. And one of the things that you said really, I was like, oh, that, that sort of fits in where they have these different personality types. There's three of them. And I was listening through the definition through somebody that's like a business coach. So mm-hmm. he's sort of like outside the realm of like medicine and science. But he's kind of like, okay, well, people who are like this, they're going to say, let's just try it. And then people like this, they're going to say, let's try it. And then people like this are going to say, you know, let's measure it and then see what we should try. So it's mm-hmm. really kind of interesting of like how you can use those. I imagine arming different types of people with those models. And, you know, I guess whenever you delivered it to the 
CEO of the company, depending on what type of person, and provided anything that I've researched is either accurate or correct, I could see them, you know, is this something that is supporting their intuition? Is it driving their intuition? Are they, you know, even mentioned, sometimes you're doing a snapshot of the market. They're saying, okay, let me measure, let me see what's out there, and then we can determine what the next step forward is. So it's it's such a cool experience that you had going through that and working with, you know, really learning the value of like, what are these tools and like, what's the best way for me to deploy them into the world? Totally. hundred percent. Yeah. How different types of people might kind of react to that and being aware of that and how, how, how that might affect kind of their reaction to it or how they want to proceed. It's awesome. Okay, cool. Well, okay. So you were now to the point in your life where you are totally burned out on investment banking. <laughs> or maybe, actually, maybe it sounds like you you moved, you, you moved to a different firm. You I did. started living mm-hmm. abroad. So you kind of made a, an intermediary switch. Was the, was the work similar? Were you still experiencing the 80 hour weeks after you, you moved to, to South America? Yeah. I mean, it was similar, but the workload was much less. So yeah, instead of maybe like 80 to 90 hours a week, it, it went down to more like maybe 60, you know, not working on the weekends, mm. being able to like make plans for the events for maybe some time off or just like, yeah, like, I mean, knowing that like your Saturday was going to most likely be be free and you could go, you know, kind of do whatever you want right. versus like kind of waiting for that like email on your time, Blackberry and right. <laughs> you know, you're like, well, other weekends that I need to go into the office. So, so yeah, I mean, it was, I, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to make that move. One, I definitely knew I wanted to have an experience living and working abroad. And then two, I, I, I really felt like just two years seemed like, it just seemed like a short amount of time to already change and do something radically different than investment banking, because it does take like so long to get up to speed and really feel like you can finally start being a contributor. And so I wanted to kind of build on that experience a bit more. I didn't want to leave immediately from investment banking. So this is a way for me to, you know, check one box, which was really want to live and work abroad and another box of, you know, kind of improving quality of life a little bit, but at the same time, like still being able to build on this kind of experience I'd already gained in investment banking in those two years at JP Morgan. Cool. And I don't know if you already mentioned this, but how did you decide on South America? I've always just loved the Spanish language. So I loved it immediately when we had, so I'm from Dallas, like I mentioned earlier, and I pretty much, I think everyone in Texas is required to take some Spanish in middle school. And I always just immediately loved it and was decent at it. I think it's just because I've always loved, I was saying like patterns and numbers and, you know, if you like and are good at like memorizing, understanding patterns, then uh, it's definitely a good, good skill to have for learning a foreign language. And I then studied abroad a few times when I was in college. So I went to Spain and then I went to Argentina a couple of times. And I knew I wanted to use the Spanish language because I was already, I would say, pretty much business fluent at that point before I had even moved to abroad. And so I knew I wanted to be a Spanish-speaking country to be able to use that skill. And South America just seemed to make a lot more sense. That's kind of where the group I was working at, JP Warren, it was a Latin American focused group. So I had a lot of contacts down there. And then just Spain seems just a little bit harder. It's maybe a little bit more developed, maybe a little harder to break in, whereas maybe there's fewer people in, at least at the time, like in South America who, you know, maybe it had like a couple of years of experience at like a JP Morgan. So maybe it was a bit easier to have that door opened. Cool. It sounds like you did a great job of looking at what resources you had available to you and looking at your goals and, okay, what relevant experience do I have and what can I deploy? And, and then based off of that, 
Sounds like you made like a, a very rational, it doesn't seem at all like you're like, you know what, I'm moving to the South, like one day you just woke up and like, you know, packed your bags and you were going out there. Sounds like, at least from my perspective in, in retrospect, sounds like you had a very like well-reasoned, well-thought-out decision to to move there. Well, I appreciate that. You know, I, I don't know. I, I think so. I mean, definitely it was something where I was, I was pretty, at the time I was definitely a little nervous to leave because... You know, it is like quite hard to get like, I don't, you know, like an investment banking job at like a place like JP Morgan. It's a pretty competitive process. And once you're in, if you kind of just stay on the track, I mean, you're, pre- you're pretty much guaranteed to, yeah, like have a, you know, really good experience, you, you know, be at like a high, high level, pretty young, you know, financially, it's obviously very good, be connected with a lot of people. It's kind of a, it's a scary track to, I guess, to give, but I think just looking at it, for those kind of three reasons I mentioned earlier, I was, you know, I was excited about doing it. It took a little while, but once I thought about it enough, I, I realized it. For me, at least, it, it definitely made sense. Right. You had to let the the model settle in your mind first, and then once all the <laughs> once all the sheets were filled out, you're like, okay, cool, we're good. Let's 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 give this a try. Totally. <laughs> cool. Awesome. And then so. You know, and I want to uh, have you repeat yourself as far as if it was a very similar experience, but any sort of anything else that you learned, you know, in, you know, being in South America, working there, kind of similar job, but certainly different locale. And like you said, maybe a different, uh, I, a part of me wonders if it almost, maybe this is a weird thought, but almost has a little bit more of a startup mentality because, you know, JP Morgan's been around uh, forever. <laughs> so, and like you mentioned, totally. there's, uh, you know, people just the market's a little bit newer and, and things are a little bit more emerging. Did you, mm-hmm. did you kind of get like a, a startup flavor from that? Or was it, was it still, you know, investment banking is naturally a very established <laughs> market? Uh-huh. No, it's just a bit more, a bit more startup-y feel. It's certainly a much, much, much smaller firm. The one I was at, it's called Larine Vial. And yeah, I mean, I don't know if they don't have too much of a presence, or at least I don't think they did at the time, like outside of South America. And it's very big in like Chile and a couple other countries. But yeah, not, uh, yeah, just in terms of like scope and scale, it's definitely like another another level than JP Morgan. So yeah, I think definitely I enjoyed the switch from the kind of ultra mega corporate huge team at JP Morgan to a little bit smaller team where I think, you know, probably knew everyone a little bit more processes and maybe weren't like quite as defined. There was definitely a little bit more room for kind of your own thinking and your own way of doing things. And so, while it still wasn't like, I would say it's not, it was not like it was, you know, super startup being, I was still very junior. So it's not like I was in charge of making too many, too many decisions at that point, you know, strategy wise, at least I did, I could sense like that, that that change was a change in the right direction for me. And so it's probably an indicator to to say to me, say to myself, like, hey, maybe I need to go even a little further down that road and get into an environment that would be even a little bit more than a startup e. Yeah, that's that's great advice. I think generally for if some if you think that you wanted to start a startup or work at a startup, I, I always recommend like work at a big company if you can because you'll you'll know pretty quickly if you're like, hey. This definitely is is not for me. Totally, um, you'll get that flavor, and and it sounds like you you sort of went through that process of I don't I don't know how big J P Morgan is. I imagine it's it's quite quite large, maybe like thousands of employees, tens of thousands. I'd say they, hundreds, they, that, hundreds of thousands. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. That's pretty big. <laughs> Very big. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, moving and just for scale, like what what was like kind of the headcount of the new firm? Are you going to like hundreds or is it still thousands? No, thousands thousands? definitely still. 
I would say maybe in tens of thousands, definitely okay. thousands. But it's just my immediate team was so much smaller as well. And, right. and yeah, certainly it was nowhere near hundreds of thousands of people. Like it was definitely, you know, there's like a few offices, not like, you know, a massive office in like pretty much every major city <laughs> in North America, <laughs> Europe, and I don't know, most of the world. So yeah, definitely a totally different scale. And I imagine the, like you said, maybe you you sort of weren't on this side, but I would imagine that the, the pitch would have to be a little bit different too. Did you find that that was the case to get clients to work with this firm? For sure. So I think the pitch more there, yeah, maybe with J.B. Morgan, oftentimes you can kind of probably just sell the reputation of the firm itself. Like it's so well-established and it's done so many important deals and like you you just... You kind of know, like through the vetting process that they do and the networks they have, that yeah, yeah, maybe in, in some ways the sell is, is not quite quite as hard. I think with La Rembial, the one of the biggest value adds they were giving, I mean, in addition to just having like a lot of really smart people as well, but is the kind of local knowledge that they had. So there's not like a whole lot of investments banks with like deep knowledge of like the local economies, like in Chile or in Peru and things like that. So I think that was maybe a little bit more their their selling point. Also, at the time, I was still relatively junior, so it's not like I was directly making the pitch to, you know, the CEOs of their potential customers, like saying, like, here's why you should hire us. So I, I still, like, wasn't really that involved with that. And that was actually a really interesting thing for me, switching from investment banking to when I did start our first startup was, like, having to switch a little bit more into that sales mentality because... Really, that's not what I had been doing. I had, was very good at like creating these models and managing numbers and creating presentations and you know making kind of these observations on the market with different like considerations and kind of proving a point. But the sales part of things, especially like directly customer facing, yeah, I was definitely not doing neither in New York, neither in in Chile. Yeah, I think it's a it's a good time to talk more about that transition. What was it like going from? the investment banking world into to do my own thing, <laughs> mm-hmm. to start my own company. Yeah, totally. So I think when I decided kind of if I wanted to leave, there's a few different factors. It's I'd been done, I guess, a couple more years in investment banking. So I felt like I had kind of fully taken advantage of those, you know, like that initial like year or two where it was mostly about like learning and then getting to contribute a little more for the next couple of years. So I felt like I'd kind of like you want to put this way, gotten out of investment banking, what I wanted, had some savings in the bank. So I knew, you know, I had both the savings and experience. So I knew that if I left, you know, I'd still have those four years of having worked at established, you know, companies and the experience I gained from that, where I felt confident that if something for whatever reason didn't work, I would be able to go back and find a job in a couple of years. I didn't think there'd be so much of a problem there. Had some savings in the bank to, you know, kind of fund things and pay myself during those first years where you're not paying yourself as much as in terms of the salary. And then also met the right partner. So that was a big timing thing too. Like I sort of said to myself like, hey, you know, if I if I find the right opportunity soon, could be the right time because of those things to start pursuing it. And then actually the someone I work with at JP Morgan, it was her boyfriend at the time is actually who is now like my co-founder in Beamer and, and the other products that we've we built. And she kind of introduced us because he was in Santiago and met Mariano, that's his name. And we, yeah, just kind of hit it off immediately and just really realized that we had just a ton of like overlapping and complementary, I guess complementary is one of the word, like skill sets and networks. So I was coming more from like the business side of things, had a pretty big network in the US and in finance. 
And then Mariano uh, was coming from the tech side of things. So he'd been working like first as a developer and then like managing his own like software development firm, doing like custom dev work for banks and other big corporations in Argentina. So he had kind of like the tech knowledge and knowledge how to like manage a tech team and a nice network in Latin America. So yeah, it just seemed like kind of a good confluence of a lot of different factors that made me start feeling comfortable with kind of taping, taking a leap of faith and, and starting something new. And then that combined with an idea that we were both psyched about and thought was a good opportunity and we decided to, to go for it. Did the introduction happen first or did the idea happen first? Intro happened first. How did the idea come about? Was it sort of the thing where you're like, hey, like this seems like there's a good connection here. And, mm-hmm. you know, were you almost looking for something to work on together or was totally. it sort of like a co-evolution? Yeah, we were. Work, look, like I think, you know, as soon as we hit it off and realized like how complementary our skill sets and networks were, we immediately did have this idea that it would be cool to work on something together. And I mean, I think we even said like, as in, like in those words, like, <laughs> like we should do something together. It's cool. But I think it, it, originally we were gearing more towards something that would be a bit more maybe financial. I mean, that's certainly like what I knew a little bit more. So something more along, to, along the lines of like creating an investment fund to invest in, you know, startups and tech companies in Latin America, where like I could be the link to like, sort of like know-how and capital in, and, you know, in the U.S. And then Mariana could be the link to like, you know, sourcing people and like, you know, how do we vet you know, startups that I had invested in. So I think it was kind of like more along those lines of what we first started. But then like, I think we, we didn't talk for a bit. And then Mariano actually came back to me with an idea for the first product that we built. And this is not Beamer. So it's not what we currently do. And this was for context, I guess this was like eight years ago, maybe eight and a half. And so he, at the time, like I mentioned, was managing a group of basically had like a software development company. So they'd be, they would do custom dev work, like building, you know, I don't know, like the online banking sites for like BBVA in Argentina, you know, deals like that. And so he's managing like a large group of developers and he felt like he needed a better way to manage their work and collaborate. They weren't all working in the same office and he wanted to be able to communicate and manage tasks and projects online, like in one centralized tool. And so that was the idea he originally has. Like, and it was sort of, I would say, like a peer of Yammer. So the idea was like to create an internal social network that would sort of replace the kind of outdated intranets and be a little bit more dynamic, a little bit bottom up, more bottom up, a little bit easier to use. And also a place where you can not only like communicate with your colleagues, but also like collaborate. So like, you know, creating projects, creating tasks, managing them, following up on them all from the same platform. So he came to me with that idea and like to target South American companies specifically. And that's, that's what we did first. I don't think we had <laughs> the right, the exact right team or capital or go-to-market strategy to make that work. I think we built a really nice product. I think it was very easy to use. And once people did actually discover it and use it, like we got great feedback and they did really like it. But it never really took off how we wanted to. So there's no like exponential growth. It was never, we got traction. I mean, we even closed some like interesting names like Telefonica was a customer of ours and a partner. Tinto, which is one of like the largest like call center companies in South America. So we got, you know, we closed some big names, got like a decent amount of customers, but it it always just felt kind of (laughs) hard, the sales process. 
didn't feel easy. It felt kind of more like we were kind of, you know, cram this product down people's throats to, at a slow crew, but like more that than like people like seeing it and be like, aha, like immediately understanding the use of it and wanting to use it. And it didn't feel like that. So, you know, we ran with it for a bit, but I think we can always knew that that, at least in its current version or with the current go-to-market strategy we had or, you know, whatever mix it was, like wasn't exactly right. So we ended up actually kind of doing some product analytics and just trying to figure out what do people like about this product. And it had a chat feature. It had an in-app chat where you could just send simple, simple like chat messages to your colleagues. And we noticed that like, you know, 95, I don't know what the exact number is, 90, 95% of the use of this product was the chat. Like that's what people wanted is the chat. They weren't using like the posts and like the projects and like all these other, what we thought were going to be really cool features. They weren't using those quite as much. So from there, actually, a couple of years later, we pivoted and we launched a second product, which we called Highbox. And the idea was to, to make something similar, but not targeting as big a companies, like not trying to be like an intranet, building it more for like SMBs and having it be more like a collaboration tool for like small and mid-sized teams. And the idea was to have the main kind of UI be a chat. And then on top of that, build in some communication capabilities. So have a chat where you could also, in addition to like sending like, you know, chat messages, you could also like video conference your team. And then you could also manage your tasks directly. So you could actually like, you know, create projects, you could create tasks, you could assign it to people, set due dates. So it's, you know, not just, it's not just like a Slack. It's not just like, I think Slack at this time was like just, just starting out. So like, we didn't want it to be just a communication platform. We wanted you to also be able to like get stuff done and like track real work, not just create a bunch of noise. That's awesome. How long did you did you go with the first iteration of the product before you said like I think we need to do something kind of different here? That's a good question. I would say it was probably around 2 years. Maybe we were starting to say that like a year and a half in. Sure. Or two and then probably we were launching or maybe even it was like yeah, a year to year and a half then maybe like a couple years after we'd launched the first product, we, we were already pivoting and kind of at least launching like a beta of this second product. Interesting. I'm just thinking there's probably somebody out there listening right now that's thinking, oh, I wonder if I'm in this, I'm in this case of, you know, we're getting some traction. It's not totally crashing and burning, but it doesn't seem like it's like, you know, lighting the world on fire. Mm-hmm. Like what was kind of like, what were some of the things that you were seeing and how did you make that decision? Cause it, the nuance here is that I feel like the challenging thing in your case was that you were signing customers up. It wasn't like, you know, if, if you sell zero customers, then that's then pretty it's clear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then you like, know. <laughs> yeah. And conversely, if, you know, if you're getting, you know, a thousand new customers a day, then you're like, oh yeah, this is, this is great. And like, you know, we're, we're on the right track, but for people in the middle, how do you, how do you know? And then, and then maybe if you can speak a little bit too, to like, once you have that information, how did you decide to what you were going to do, you know, almost kind of bringing back the, you know, investment banker models of like, well, first you need to gather the data and, you know, analyze it. And then you need to, then you just have data though. Like, how do you actually take action on it? Totally. Yeah. Happy to speak to this because I think it's a really complex issue. And I 
definitely don't think there's any like one size fits all or like if this is happening XYZ, then you know you need to do this. You know, kind of like I mentioned before, it definitely feels to me like a little bit more of like an art than a science, like how you know what to do. But I'll just kind of briefly walk through because we've actually pivoted twice. So I, I have been through this sure. and You're, you have expertise. Definitely, yeah, I have a little bit of, uh, if not expertise, at, le- at least some experience to share. Sure. But so like the first time, when we launched Highbox originally, and I think really in both cases, when we launched the new product, we were not launching. It was not like, a, okay, product A is not working and we're sure of it. So we're going to go 100% to product B. So stop everything for product A, right. 100% of dev work and sales and marketing and everything now goes into product B. It was a pretty slow, gradual process. And in both cases, I think what we thought originally was that product B, so the new product could actually potentially even serve as like a lead magnet for product, the previous product. Interesting. So it's like we weren't really ready to give up yet and sure. we're definitely still yeah, of course. doing a lot of sales and marketing and dev work for the prior product. And I think not in all cases, I'm sure, but for us, I think that was good because we didn't just rush into it kind of blindly and it allowed us to, I mean, one, like keep making money from you know, keep having like, you know, sales and revenue from the prior products to fund the development and the marketing of the new product, but also just, you know, taking it slow, like not still giving the other one time to see if you can, okay, find something that does work. You find that one marketing channel that like is your go-to-market channel and you can really double and triple down on that. And then maybe product A does work, but that didn't happen for us. And in the case of Highbox, I would say, which was the second product we built, a similar kind of growth cycle happened. We grew a bit more. I think it was a bit uh, better product market fit. And I think we were just more experienced in terms of creating like, you know, good UX and making it be easy to use. And, you know, a few like, you know, marketing channels that, that worked and just becoming, you know, better at selling it. And so it worked a bit better, but still kind of the same thing. We oftentimes felt like the sales cycles were just longer than we wanted and then for the amount of effort we had to put in, it's like we weren't able to charge quite enough for it to really make sense. You know, it's kind of like more of like an SMB pricing, but oftentimes it felt like more like enterprise sales type cycle, which is not what you want. And so then when we did, so, you know, we kind of got to that same spot with the second product. And then we, I think, had a really cool insight. So for the, the, the last pivot we did, we had a really big, painful internal need, which was we are building a ton of amazing new features for our users and we have no way to let them know about it. The only thing we have is email and no one's opening them. They're getting sent to spam and promotions. It's not in context. We can only send out like, you know, I don't know, an email once a month even feels like a lot, maybe once every two months. So we need a better way to notify our users in-app about these amazing new features and improvements that we're building for them because they need to know they need to use it. It'll cause them to be more engaged. They'll churn less. They'll upgrade more. So we built basically like a, an in-app kind of change log sidebar widget for Highbox for a second product. And that is what became the kind of initial version of Beamer, which is the current product that we work on. So I think when you are pivoting, I think it's nice, at least for us, it was nice to have some sort of experience in product A that led us to have some sort of insight or reason or facility to build, you know, the next thing, like the, the new product. 
because I think that'll make you much more successful. You know, we were, when we built Beamer, the first version, we were like, well, this is going to be a great way. We'll give it away for free. And this is going to be an amazing way to build a database of leads to, to sell high box. <laughs> and then totally that did not happen. But that was our idea at first is to kind of move it slow and not, not the 100% pivot immediately. Interesting. I think from from product two to product three, it makes a lot of sense that you're you're sort of like developing, you're getting into this kind of iterative process of trying things out and sort of analyzing how they do. But it almost feels like to me, like the big leap that you took was between product one and product two. And I, I totally appreciate it. I think you're you're totally correct to say like we're not gonna we're not gonna burn the boats, like we're not gonna shut the first product down for the sake of the second product. But there had to be something there where you said, okay, you know, we've hit some sort of threshold here where maybe it feels like we're getting diminishing returns or, or something, you know, and then you said like, well, let's, you know, we are now open to the idea of bringing something else in. Like what was, what was going on? Like what was that determination that you made of like, okay, like we went from being a company that's focused on one product and we're doing this thing and we're trying our best at it to okay, maybe it's time to broaden our view just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Totally. I mean, I think, yeah, in, at least in the case of when we launched Beamer, you know, and, and I think almost in both cases, like we didn't, I, I don't think we immediately thought that it would be a new separate standalone product. It was like something that in case of Beamer, you know, we were just going to build an add-on for ourselves and internal development for us to use. In the case of Highbox, it was like, well, let's build something and then, you know, maybe it can just be, you know, maybe we even market it under the same site. You know, maybe it's still part of JointCube, which is what we called our first product, like, and it's just like the SMB version or something. So it was always like a pretty, you know, gradual, I would say, process. And then I think as you start building it out more and maybe you share it with some friends, you know, that's kind of always our process is like, okay, let's share this with our core group of like, you know, best like you know, five to 10, like entrepreneur friends and see what they think, you know, let's get an outside eye on this. Like maybe we're <laughs> just a little too myopic where, you know, it's just us thinking about this. Like, let's see what actually someone else who doesn't have our particular biases, like thinks about it. And then I think when you do that, and if you kind of get some positive feedback there of people saying like, well, Hey, no, this is great. Like I would use that, or I'd pay for that, or, you know, I'd use it, but maybe you should add this, you know, just kind of depending on their reaction you can sort of get a first litmus test of, is this something that's worth pursuing a little bit more or not? Got it. Okay, cool. Yeah, so it almost sounds to me like if you, if an entrepreneur in a similar situation came to you, your sort of very quick decision-making process would be like, well, first of all, do they they have something or are they in the case where like they don't have any customers? And it almost feels like if you don't have any customers, then okay, you might need to go back to the drawing board. But if they have customers and they're in these conversations and maybe they're noticing things, like you mentioned, the sales cycle is a little bit too long or you know, costs us too much money to acquire a customer, either through ad channels or just like, well, we can sign up a customer, but then you know we need to dedicate a person to supporting them or whatever the case is. So there, there's kind of, if the entrepreneur could then articulate what is it about your business that's not working? What's working and what's not working? Then as they're provided, they're talking to customers and provided they are having those those conversations, they can start to search for, okay, well, 
to you, it sounded like sales cycles are really long and kind of expensive. So you were thinking, okay, well, what can we do here to decrease our sales cycle? And you said, well, maybe selling to smaller businesses, a subset of the functionality that would be more relevant to that business. Let's try focusing on that. Is, is that kind of like the, 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 the cycle dramatically simplified and put? No, hundred percent. That resonates a lot. hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, identify, yeah, what are the specific problems for, you know, too much churn or, you know, those other things you mentioned. And then can you pinpoint that and improve it or fix it in your own product? Or, yeah, do you need to, like, actually launch something new kind of to get those goals you have? Because, like, I can give an example that we had, for example. We always knew <laughs> we our, our biggest goal was always how can we get our users to promote our product? without them needing to do it consciously. So a la, you know, the like sent from my iPhone. We always wanted that and we could never figure out how to do it with Highbox or JoinQ, the first two products. And that's why as soon as Beamer came about and we realized, oh, well, maybe this could be a standalone product. We thought this is perfect. This is perfect for product-led because basically all of our customers are just going to install, they're going to embed our script and they're going to show the Beamer widget to all of their users. And in many cases, a lot of our customers, like who could use Beamer, most of their users are also good potential customers for us because we're selling to SaaS. So yeah, just an example, like something we were always trying to fix in those other two products, never could figure out a way to do it, build something new, saw that it solved that in a huge, in like the perfect way. And that was one of the, I guess, factors that kind of led us to being more open to pursuing that more and more and putting more and more of our resources into that. Cool. Yeah, it, it sort of strikes me. It almost, to me, sounds like the similar process you went through when deciding to move to South America. It's like you have this skill of being like a like an inventory master or something like that, where you're mm-hmm. like, okay, let me like sort of catalog it. And you probably don't, or correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like you don't necessarily do this like consciously where you're creating lists, but you're like, okay, well, what are our strengths? Like, what are good about, what's good about the product? And what, you know, what are our weaknesses? You know, that's like the, uh, you know, long sales cycle or, you know, salespeople are too expensive or it's cost us too much to market it. And then you kind of take all these things and then you start to collect. Uh, I don't know if I'm accidentally creating, like reinventing the concept of like SWAT, but you're like, okay, well, <laughs> what are our opportunities? Uh-huh. And like, you know, like, okay, cool. Well, you know, people are really digging the chat side and then people, you know, and, oh, well, we needed this tool for us, you know, this is like a, this is something that we have available to us. And this, you know, it, it almost feels like you have this real skill and sort of cross-referencing of like, what do we have? What are our strengths? And then what am I hearing in the marketplace? And then can we use that to bridge the gap between using this thing that we have, like or some things you didn't have already, some things you had to develop, but you know, we're operating from this element of strength of like, how can we use sort of what we already have to address or resolve the issues that are that are being presented within the company that are slowing us down. Yeah, totally. I, I do think that the strength of our team, and I would say even especially of my co-founder Mariano, is just exactly what you described. You know, take the the kind of weaknesses and see what you can do to to make those opportunities. So yeah, I, I think that's something I'm sure everyone could could benefit. From and we don't, yeah, we don't keep like written lists or anything. It's a bit more, and maybe that would help. I don't know, but definitely doing it either consciously and like written down or or unconsciously, I think is, is certainly helpful. Yeah, I suppose you give it a try, but it, it just sounds to me like it's this is something that's 
innate in you and maybe sort of drilled into you from the investment banking world, but it just sort of feels like your internal operating system, like, you know, just like loves to process through these sorts of problems and, you know, kind of connecting the, it almost, of course, it always sounds a lot easier than it probably was when you were going through it. But, you know, it's just interesting when you look back, it's like, oh, wow, there were some pretty clean, you know, clean lines, clean resolutions between the issues that we were having and, you know, what we were, what we were working through. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I think looking back, it's, Always easier to kind of see how the dots connect. But yeah, we were we were definitely conscious of it and, and kind of trying to do that. So yeah, I'm sure. Sure it didn't hurt. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, cool. So it sounds like we're we're sort of at like present day. Like tell me about Beamer. I mean, you kind of give me sort of the the basic idea, but what are you working on now? Like what are you where's your attention currently? Yeah, so it's a hundred percent on Beamer and it's something that we're all as a team really psyched on, really excited about. So we, I guess, launched the first beta version of Beamer just a little over three years ago. So not, not too, too long ago. Since then, we just like immediately could feel the difference in people's reaction to the product, their adoption of it, how quickly they were adopting it, the feedback they were giving us on it, the willingness to like be early kind of beta testers and use the product, even though it didn't have like, you know, everything on their wish list, but even still they were like psyched on actually using it and like using it in a real way, like, you know, actually kind of like installing it for all their users to see. So we could just really feel that tangible difference. I mean, the first thing we did was an AppSumo launch, actually. And I'm glad we did that. Yeah, I was, you know, for people who don't know, you can basically, it's got a huge community of people. And for products that are just starting out, you can market to that community. Typically, you offer a lifetime deal. So people will pay like, typically somewhat around like one month, of what you typically charge or what you'd like to charge for your product, but they get lifetime access to it. So obviously you do this when you're like very, very early stage. Like we didn't have any paying customers at this point, but it's just a good way to get a lot of kind of initial early adopters, you know, really playing around with your product and giving you real feedback. And the limited, the lifetime deal also like can be very limited in terms of, or maybe not very, but it can be limited in terms of like features that they have and there's upgrade opportunities. And, but yeah, as soon as we did that, I mean, we, I think sold, I don't know, maybe three or 4,000 of those in a week of those lifetime deals. And that was a really big indicator to us. Like, hey, people really um, see the value in this. And maybe there's a lot of people who would use it. And yeah, then kind of more and more, we started focusing more on Beamer. And I mean, within, I think, I need to check the exact number, but I don't know, probably within like five or six months, Beamer's MRR was the same as the first two products combined. So it, there was just... And that was within that was with hardly any marketing spend at all, hundred percent bootstrapped. Like we'd raised kind of a friends and family round for to build those other two products. Relatively, didn't raise anything for Beamer. Hundred percent bootstrapped, just kind of revenue from those products. And even still, it was like you know able to surpass them and just like six, maybe even less. Maybe it was four or five. So it it was really obvious that was nice. That was not a hard decision (laughs) to go with, and it just fit kind of the business model we were looking for so much better and being like more product led and more, you know, kind of self-service and automated. And so, yeah. And then, so we've been doing that kind of around with that since then we've since uh, sold Highbox and JoinCube is still around, but very, very much in maintenance mode. It's got a few customers still love it and you know we provide service to them, but it's not a, not a big drag at all on our resources. And yeah, that's kind of where we are now. And so kind of the vision is for Beamer, like what we're trying to build is platform to help SaaS companies build better products. 
So how do we do that? We basically give them tools to identify what sort of features they... So we started out as just like a change log and have since like expanded. And so kind of like the now what, what Beamer does is, is I'd say much more complete. So now you can, and this is something we're launching, probably be launched right around the time of this coming out. I don't know how, how long this will take, but, but certainly like around there. So the first tool you have is the ability to identify what features you should be building. And the way you do that is the roadmap tool. So you can actually show your users, hey, like these are the features we're thinking about building have them upvote on features so you can determine, okay, of these features in these different stages, here's the real priority. I'm not just guessing. Here's what my users really are telling me is the most important for them. And then also has a a feature request tool so that your users can go and in like a more organized, you know, again, like quantitative way, tell you here's the features that I would like you to add. And then you can decide if you want to show that or not. So you're, you're identifying what features you should be building. Once you identify that and build the feature, you've got the change log and a bunch of other in-app modals like snippets and banners and tooltips to notify your users and let them know, like, here's what we built. We've built this thing. Go use it with a lot of smart tools like segmentation and analytics to measure impact and feedback so you can see what they think of that specific update. And then kind of to close the feedback loop for product teams, we have an NPS survey tool and we'll be adding some other things like CSAT and other feedback kind of measuring tools so that you can determine, okay, over time, are all these features that I've identified and then built, is that really adding more value to my user's experience? And you can kind of like measure that over time and by user segment. So that's kind of the vision going forward is, you know, how can we just do that better? And yeah, we're, we're psyched on it. Wow, that's really cool. It- totally makes sense to me of like letting your letting your users know it's actually one of like the when we look at businesses from bare metrics when we we talk to customers but also from the from the private equity side when we we look at businesses it is like basically universally the case that customers of most SaaS products know about like 5% of the functionality. Totally. So it's just like so critical, you know, and even even within the bare metrics world we would get people that would would cancel and they would say things like, yeah, we really love the tool, but we just wish we could segment, you know, some of the metrics. And mm-hmm. like, it's like, oh, geez, we have segmentation like every it's <laughs> like, That's one of our main features. It's, it's like, yeah, like, it's like something, and it's like, you know, really like, complex and really, like we, we've like invested a bunch of time into it. And it's, right. you know, and it's just like, man, just like not everybody knows about it. So I think it's like a critical step for SaaS businesses to like make sure that, you feel like you're, I mean, I, I think generally product teams, once they are ready to launch something, they're like, okay, we're done. Like we've been working on this. We mm-hmm. did the research, did the customer interviews. We did the the testing and the wireframes. And then like when you launch it, you're like, okay, cool, it's done. And it's like, well, actually from your customer's perspective, you haven't even really started. You haven't even started. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I like that. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's so critical to, to get that information across. And then, yeah, it's like, I, I feel like what do we build next and, and what do we do and what do our customers actually care about. I've over time really have begun to, I think I used to be, you know, whatever that, that Steve Jobs quote or whatever, whoever it's, whoever it's attributed to of like, yeah, you can't ask people what they want. And as I've gotten more and more exposures to businesses and I've seen what really works in the real world, especially across Barometrics customers across our our portfolio. It's like no, you kind of you kind of can. <laughs> you kind of <laughs> like you you can't just go obviously going too far on the other side, you know, hand to mouth. But if you wanted to double the satisfaction of your customers and and find real 
revenue growth opportunities. You have to have the, the conversation correctly, I think. For example, instead of asking like, what feature do you want? You'd have to say like, how much would you pay for this feature? And if somebody says zero dollars, then Not your answer. you know, you know, it's a, you know, it's a, it's nice to have it. It doesn't mean that you wouldn't do it, but right. you know, certainly if you if you're like, well, yeah, what would it be worth for you to have this type of functionality? And they're like, we would pay you eight thousand dollars a month for that. Mm-hmm. You know, we mm-hmm. will give you we'll give you three months upfront. You'd be like, okay. I'm getting a stronger signal, <laughs> for sure. you know? So yeah, like really being able to dig into what to do next. I, I totally believe that that comes, especially if you have any sort of reasonably sized customer base, even, I mean, even a few dozen customers, you can really start to drill in there. So yeah, it's awesome. It's, it's really cool to hear kind of you approaching this from like a full, you know, full cycle perspective, because it all, then people will be excited. Well, first off, they'd be expecting it to launch because they customers asked for it. You, you're almost pre-promoting it and then and they can see it launch and you're like awesome like we we asked for this thing and then it delivered and it's just a really you know, the, the further out you can draw that draw that funnel or that, that process i think the more happy your customers are going to be totally yeah it's really cool to hear you say that as well and and i i totally agree too like you definitely need to have a decent sized customer base you know maybe at the very beginning you, you are needing to have a little bit of that vision and and certainly for some people they just may have the vision and they don't they don't need desk customers and they're steve jobs or whatever it is and you know they know how to do it yeah, but i think steve, i think for most if you're steve jobs don't don't worry about this. yeah exactly i think everybody else <laughs> but for everybody else yeah, yeah probably it's good to have a little bit of like more quantifiable insight into what your users really want like and as you say like once you do have a bigger user base you've kind of identified your main buyer persona and like you you that's who you're asking you're asking the right audience you're not asking the right wrong audience i think in that case it definitely it definitely you know can't hurt and i think oftentimes it can it can help a lot and yeah just what you're saying about the whole cycle and pre-promoting yeah that's really cool to hear you say that because it's it's one kind of effect i think we're we're seeing a little bit now that you know beamers you know a little bit more widespread we've got over a thousand paying customers and many more in free and a lot of them are, you know, some of the top SaaS, the guys like Intercom, you know, Hotjar, Lassian, Freshworks, guys like these are all all using, you know, they've got like big customer bases. We're kind of seeing now that there's sort of this like virtuous cycle because it's like now that the users are seeing, you know, they've been shown like a change log and they can see like what's new. That's kind of like incentivizing them to, as a user, to demand more of that company and be like, hey, like, you know, I'd also like, you know, this new feature. And Seeing that and having that demand from the user is, you know, making the product teams kind of incentivizing them to motivating them to build better products. And so I just think it's it's kind of a cool virtuous cycle for the industry to have that more open communication between users and product teams and just, you know, build something that's, you know, even better and and sort of more impactful. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And I think it's very dangerous for me to disagree with you on these sorts of topics, given your your domain. But I, I would almost argue that the, the use of the word demand, you know, kind of like the, the creation of demand, I think is maybe not, in, not correct. I think that all of our products have customers that want stuff all the time. The difference is that there's not a convenient way for them to tell you, or they'll say like, ah, oh, you know, it's not a, not a big enough of a deal. Like, yeah, it's kind of frustrating. I have to click here, then I have to click here, then I have to click here. But once you once you know about it, you don't need to worry about it. It's like, well, the issue is that your new customers that you're trying to set, set up haven't gotten over that. So that might be a deal killer for them. So I think it's, you know, if you make it really easy to start to 
harness that, you know, that those features that customers are looking for, you actually can hear from them and actually get the feedback versus people kind of suffering, <laughs> suffering in silence, which we, we all unfortunately totally. do to our customers uh, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, I, I think that's a good way to put it. And yeah, just kind of like having that channel available is, the, I mean, the demand, yeah, and it was always there. It's just not like easier for them to let you know, like what they're thinking. So yeah, I, I agree with that. Cool. Well, hey, Spencer, this has been this has been awesome. I really appreciate you making the time to chat, and I, I love I love hearing you walk through the through the story. It's so cool to you know kind of see the lessons that you've learned earlier on and the skills that you've gained earlier on, and like seeing you applying them in like a major way. And it's always cool to like hear somebody you know hit a home run. <laughs> you know, if like yeah, like product three made more money in the first three months than product one and two together. I mean, that's just like. That's really cool. And, and I hope anybody who's out there that's listening that's in that spot, maybe they are on product too. It's like, hey, you're, <laughs> you got to keep going. <laughs> your, exactly. beamer, your, beamer, your beamer is out there. So yeah, keep going for it. Is there anything else you wanted to, to cover? Anything else you want to say to the, to the listening audience before we, we close it up here? No, I don't think so. I just want, I mean, one, really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for, for doing this. I think it's awesome. I've tuned in some of the episodes already and super good. And yeah, so appreciate you taking the time to to chat and having us on. And yeah, no, just I, I would encourage, I mean, just reading it kind of what you said. Yeah, just being being persistent and being scrappy. I think that's two of the things we we did well. And I think that, yeah, just because, you know, first product's not working as you want. Like if you're persistent and scrappy enough and lean enough, you'll have time to find something else that does work. So yeah, I think that's a okay message to to leave with so awesome i agree <laughs> awesome spencer well yeah thanks so much for coming on and we'll, we'll we'll have to we'll have to catch up soon i'm excited to if if it's not live already by the time we launch this i'll make sure that we do a little we do a little update to make let everybody know when those features are available yeah perfect sounds good yeah you can check it all out at www.getbeamer.com it's our site and yeah thanks again brian i appreciate it my pleasure that was our conversation with spencer coon founder of beamer if you're looking to get your features in front of your customers and tighten up your product development process, you know where to go. GetBeamer.com. That's G-E-T-B-E-A-M-E-R.com. If it's SaaS analytics you're looking for, then you can check us out at BearMetrics.com. Hope you enjoyed the episode and invite you to check out our other founder chats. If you're able to leave a review or share with a friend, it goes a long way. Thanks for listening.